Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we long to know you. You long to be known. Show us who you are by the Son who knows you and who reveals you to us. Spirit, please set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Help us to see your heart this morning, O God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. There's a classic trope in a lot of Westerns. It's when a new sheriff comes to town. There's been some kind of antagonist terrorizing the citizenry. It's a bandit, a thief, a horse gang, and the town has found itself unable to resist, unable to establish any kind of justice, and they need a powerful outsider to step in and set things to rights. But then the new sheriff shows up, and after that first surge of hope, then the doubts can start to roll in. Because will this new sheriff actually be powerful enough to set things right? And, and even if he is powerful enough, how will this new authority wield that power? Maybe he'll catch the thief and banish the bandits, but then what? How will he treat the people once he's established? Once they owe him, what's he going to demand? The question is, what's the true character of this new authority? It's the same kind of dynamic that happens when a new monarch comes into power. Think of the history of our own Anglican church. Think of the whiplash which English, English Christians must have experienced between Henry VIII and then young Protestant Edward VI and then the Catholic reaction under Bloody Mary before reaching Elizabeth and her compromise. Or think of the faithful Israelites, few though they may have been in the book of Judges, when each transfer of power felt like a roulette game. Is this judge going to do what's right in the eyes of Yahweh or the opposite? Is he going to utterly forsake him? But probably the best scriptural example that we have of this question, the question, who is the new ruler? What's the character of the new sheriff in town? It's the story of Solomon and his son Rehoboam in 1 Kings 11 and 12. Now, when I say the name Solomon, what comes to your mind? Most people with at least a passing familiarity of the Bible, will think of three things. They're going to think, wise guy, split baby, lots of wives. Which, fair enough, that's not a terrible summary. But there's so much more to the story of Solomon. And the story of Solomon starts out really well. See, Solomon is the son of David. And that phrase, son of David, should make our ears perk up because we've read the Gospels. God made a covenant with David, an everlasting covenant, and he promised David that his descendants would always rule on the throne of the house of Israel. And in accord with that promise, Solomon, when he comes to the throne, he receives a united kingdom. All 12 tribes of Israel are there together. And he receives that from his father. And one of Solomon's first acts as ruler is, you know it, to ask Yahweh for wisdom. And this is one of the signs of a true king, one who knows to depend upon the Lord, to seek wisdom from the God who actually has it and loves to give it. And Yahweh answers Solomon's prayer, and Solomon is richly rewarded. Solomon is the wisest man, Scripture says. And Israel thrives under his rule. 
The splendid temple is completed and a magnificent palace beside it. Magnificent sacrifices are offered to Yahweh with faithfulness. Israel is at peace. They rule over the land. Israel possesses untold wealth. It has the admiration and the envy of all nations. And then the Lord appears to Solomon after the covenant is renewed, and he promises him that so long as you, Solomon, walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, then I, the Lord, will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. And so for a good while, it looks as though, and it is the case, that the covenant promises that God made to Israel are fulfilled. They're not afraid of their enemies. There's peace in the land. The land is at rest, First Kings says. But then power and wealth do what they tend to do, and they seduce Solomon, who begins to compromise in precisely the way that Scripture says kings should not compromise. He starts to marry foreign wives, and this act dilutes the fidelity of Israel because these wives from all over Canaan, they start to introduce idolatry. And soon Solomon himself is building temples to idols. And the ambition that Solomon has had for splendor and glory and wealth, it leads him to start exacting harsh taxes on the Israelites. And he compels their labor, and they start to speak of what they call the heavy yoke of Solomon. Solomon lays a heavy yoke upon his people. So by the time that Solomon dies and the kingdom needs to be passed down, handed over to a new heir, this transfer of power is going to be a time of trouble. So his son Rehoboam comes to the throne, and the question is, who's the new guy? Who's the new sheriff? What's he like? And Rehoboam himself doesn't seem to know at the beginning. His father Solomon laid this heavy yoke upon the people, and the question is, is Rehoboam going to lighten it, or is he going to double down? Will he rule in gentleness and compassion or with naked power and an iron fist? And Rehoboam starts to take counsel, which is a good sign, right? There's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. His father sort of said that in Proverbs. And he first calls the elder officials, the ones who were there in the glory days of the United Kingdom. And he asks them, what should I do? And they say, look, by the end there, Solomon had really antagonized the people. Approval ratings in the tank, to be honest. You need to offer yourself as a servant of the people. Speak good words to them. And if you do that, they'll be your servants forever. And then Rehoboam's wisdom runs out, and he turns to his friends, his young, headstrong, drunk-on-new-power friends. He says, what should I do? And they say, no way, dude, because they're definitely the kinds of guys who say dude to their friend who's the king. No way, dude. You're going to live in the shadow of David and Solomon forever unless you assert yourself. There's a new sheriff in town. You need to tell the people, and this is the language of 1 Kings 12, you tell the people, my little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I'm going to add to that yoke. Which advice do you think Rehoboam takes? He goes with the headstrong friends, and he tells the people, you think you have a heavy yoke? You don't even know what a yoke is yet. And as a consequence, pretty much immediately, the United Kingdom is divided. Israel is scattered. And Rehoboam is now king over a kingdom that is basically no more. See, the character of the new sheriff in town, who the new king is at heart, has massive consequences for the city or the kingdom. 
So when someone new comes into power, the question is always, who is this new guy? Not only what is he going to do, but who is he at heart? What's his character? And it's the same question which is before us this morning. Because in our gospel reading from Matthew, Jesus announces a transfer of power. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says. The Father whom he has just addressed as the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, if the Lord of heaven and earth hands over all things to you, that makes you the Lord of heaven and earth. There's a new sheriff in town. The good news of that king is going forth. The kingdom of God is being proclaimed in word and in power. The king is revealing himself to the people at this time by healings and exorcisms and resurrections. All over rural Israel, the the, the kingdom is being announced. The king is making himself known. And how is it being received? Well, it should be received like the words that we read from Psalm 145 and Zechariah 9. We should be hearing Israel say, I will extol you, my God and my king, and bless your name forever. The people of Israel are meeting their God face to face. They should be rejoicing with Zechariah and saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. But instead of that warm reception, what does Jesus find? The town doesn't seem to care for this new sheriff. He comes to his people. Jesus brings miracles and wondrous signs, and the people don't even repent. Just a few verses before this passage begins, Jesus is pronouncing woe upon these cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Jesus says that if the signs that you've received were done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, These were cities of great prosperity and wealth. If the signs were done in them, they would have repented. And you don't repent. And so the judgment upon you is going to be even greater. You, by rejecting me, have done something even worse than Sodom. And it's because these towns in Galilee have received something more glorious than Tyre and Sidon and their great wealth could conjure. These little Galilean backwood towns, they've been visited by someone even more holy and important than the angels that visited Sodom. God has seen fit to call these little towns in Galilee his hometown. The incarnate son has stood in their midst and introduced himself as the king, their righteous king, and his kingdom is one of healing and the forgiveness of sins, and yet wherever he brings that, they reject him. And so Jesus mourns. He's come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. These sheep who for centuries haven't had a decent shepherd. And he comes to them as the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, who binds up the wounded, who leads them beside still waters, who feeds them in the fat pastures of his life-giving word. And yet they shrug or scoff and send him on his way. So Jesus mourns, and he denounces their unbelief. And yet, even as he does that, in our passage, he can't help but praise his Father for the wisdom that's being displayed here. I thank you, Father, Jesus says. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding 
and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We've been talking about how Christians carry forth the kingdom into the world, and we've talked about how they're going to meet with persecution, and that word is going to bring a sword and division. And it is the case that when the the gospel of the kingdom goes forth, men and women are going to reject that gospel. There are wolves out there. And when that happens, as Jesus says it will, it can make us feel like the advancement of the kingdom has stalled out, that it's been arrested. But, But God is not surprised by any of this. He is unperturbed. This is, in fact, God's will and God's wisdom. See, God, who is Lord of heaven and earth, he hides and he reveals. Not arbitrarily, not just for fun. He's consistent in who he hides things from and who he reveals things to. And it's not like the world does this. See, this is the way the world seems to work. Those who are privileged with strength tend to look down on the weak. Those who are given beauty look with disgust on the plain and the ugly. The rich despise and exploit the poor, the sophisticated. They mock the simple. But in God's kingdom, those tables are turned. And it is precisely from those who think themselves worthy and admirable and deserving that God hides the truth. Time and again in Scripture, it's the so-called wise and understanding by which Jesus means the wise in their own eyes, the proud, the haughty, oftentimes the well-educated and the well-turned-out. These are the ones whom God casts out and leaves out. And it's precisely, on the other hand, the little children, the babes, those of low status, those who are untrained, those who have nothing to recommend themselves except their own need, whom God delights to reveal himself. It's those who recognize their abject dependence on God that God loves to lift up. And here's a question for us this morning. Do we praise where Jesus praises? Do we delight in God's preference for the humble? Or do we find ourselves slipping into the easy stream of the world, the stream which scorns the weak and worships advancement and advantage? God resists the proud. Do you? God gives grace to the humble, to you. And the fact that God hides and God reveals, that reveals that God is sovereign, that he is powerful, that he rules, that he is truly the Lord of heaven and earth. And he gets to decide who gets to see the heavens and the earth clearly. And now in our passage, the Father is handing that authority, that power over to the Son. The Son gets to hide and to reveal And now that the Son gets to hide and reveal, what does he say? What what does the Son reveal? He reveals nothing less than the knowledge of God. That's what he's saying in verse 27. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. God knows himself. That may sound like an obvious thing, but, but God knows himself in a way that none of us can know him naturally. Because in God is all truth and all beauty and all goodness beyond what our kin can contain. And God knows himself. The Father knows the Son. The Son knows the Father. The Spirit knows the Father and the Son. That knowledge is beyond us. And, and it may sound to you like a little abstruse, like what's with all this inter-Trinitarian theology? It sounds like a very advanced theology class. Why, why does this matter? Why does Jesus talk about it here? Remember, we're not talking about abstract knowledge here. 
We're not talking about highfalutin conceptual apparatuses. We're talking about the knowledge that is relationship. And we're talking about knowledge of God. Knowledge that's not like a textbook. Knowledge that's more like the knowledge spouses have of one another. To, to know and to be known. The kind of knowledge that we all long for. Is there one person in this whole world who truly knows me and still loves me? And when we're talking about the knowledge of the true God, this is the knowledge which is life itself. This is how Jesus talks about it in John 17. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We were created, you were created, to know God in this way. That's our purpose, our end. It's the essence of eternal life, Jesus says. But I know that when a preacher says something like the essence of eternal life, that sounds kind of vague and airy and unclear. So what are we talking about when we're talking about the knowledge of God? I'll get at it a couple ways. You know the delight that you take in some obscure and silly fact that you know? Just like the delight of knowing something just strange and wonderful about the world. So like, for example, did you know that one of the loudest creatures, the loudest animals in the world is this two centimeter long pistol shrimp? And when that shrimp snaps its claws, it does it with such, like, agility and speed that it creates this little air bubble. And when that bubble collapses, it's louder than a gunshot and almost as hot as the sun. Pretty cool, right? (laughs) That little thrill of wonder, that little delight that you feel when you know a fact like that, that is the tiniest sliver of what it feels like to know God. Because he made that shrimp, you know? That's a reflection of his glory. But, but it's more than that. It's not just the delight that you take in trivia or facts. Think of the most intimate relationship you have in your life. Think of the most life-giving friendship that you have. Think of the person whose companionship just fills you with a warmth, even just thinking about them. That, too, is just a tiny taste of what it means to know God, who knows you and who loves you fully. Now, only God knows the fullness and the wonder and the joy which knowing God brings. Only God knows the fullness of that. As Jesus says, the Father knows the Son and delights in the Son. The Son knows the Father and delights in the Father. But it doesn't stop there because God is not interested in jealously hoarding the delightful knowledge of himself. He wants to fill the whole world with it. It's why he created creation. And the way that the triune God brings us into the knowledge of himself is this. Jesus reveals it to us. Jesus shows us. You can know the Father. You can know the Lord of heaven and earth because Jesus the Son chooses to reveal him to you. And so here in Matthew, we have the new sheriff in town. He's just been handed all authority and all judgment, and he's approaching the moment of his glorification. He is the full revelation of God, the sure and only way to know who God is. He has staked his claim for divinity, for exclusive salvation. Everything belongs to Jesus. You cannot imagine a more sovereign and glorious being than Jesus Christ. There's a new sheriff in town, and so we ask the question that we started with, who is he? This new guy, all authority is his. What's he like? How's he going to wield it? Who's this new king? What is his heart? He's coming into power 
Does he intend to wield his power to make our yoke heavier? Is he going to rule with an iron fist? Is he a Rehoboam? Then Jesus speaks, and he reveals his character. More than that, he reveals the very heart of God. This is the only place in all four Gospels where Jesus himself speaks directly of the divine heart. This is where Jesus tells us, at God's heart, this is the fundamental, never-changing heart that God has for you. The king speaks, and his words are like cool lemonade on an Alabama summer afternoon. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. This is the new sheriff, remember? This is the new king. He could rightfully say, I dwell in unapproachable splendor. Stay far away. Try to serve me as best you can. But no. The new sheriff in town says, come to me. Approach me. Sit down here beside me. Let me embrace you. And he doesn't say, come to me, you who are impressive, you who have it together. Come to me, all of those who have something they can offer me. No, he says, come to me, you who are weary, weighed down, unable even to lift your head. Jesus reveals that God's heart is for the weak, the penitent, and that's you. You are the weak. I am the weak. I'm not saying you don't have strengths and virtues and gifts to offer. I'm not saying that God doesn't want to build those in you, but, but really... We are the weak, and you know it, I think. You know that you're not the master of your own fate. You know that you are not the ubermensch. Some of you know it well. Others need to be reminded. You may well be a captain of industry, but that industry will soon leave you behind. You may be the belle of the south, but that beauty will soon fade. You are, and you know you are, a poor, bare, forked creature, you're burdened by some stubborn sin that you cannot seem to shake. Perhaps you're burdened by work that you know you are ill-equipped for. Burdened with a life for which you cannot muster the needed energy or purpose. We are flailers and failures, the lot of us. And yet God calls that you, the weary and the burdened you, to himself. He doesn't say, Get rid of that unsightly burden, please. Cover up those bags under your eyes and then come to me. No, he says, come to me as you are, with your exhaustion, hard luck, with your bad turns, with your sin-sick heart, and I'm the one who's going to unburden you and give you rest. Rest. Are you in need of rest this morning? I'm not talking about a nap. I'm not talking about a break. Are you in need of true refreshment? Salve for your wounds. Respite for your soul. Only Jesus can give it to you. Because only Jesus reveals to us the Father. Only in Jesus can we know God. Only when we enter Jesus' presence do we enter the promised land of rest. See, rest, he's not, it's not a vacancy. It's not a vacation. It's not emptiness. At creation, remember, the world was without form and it was void. It was empty. 
but it wasn't at rest. That's not rest. The empty world is not a restful world. Neither is the goal of your life, neither is the rest that you think you need just emptiness, just a break. The rest that Jesus offers you is not one silent measure in the chaotic symphony of your life. It's an entire retuning, a recomposition. Jesus does not mean that your work is over. Far from it. We've been talking about it for a few weeks. God has a harvest that he's bringing in, and he needs you to help with that. The true rest that Jesus offers you is a new way to carry life. And he promises to give you rest and then to give you the equipment that you need in order to to have meaningful labor. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. And that phrase is strange. He says, take my yoke. There were lots of rabbis at the time who talked about the yoke of the Torah. But Jesus doesn't say, take the yoke. He says, take my yoke. He's claiming the law, just like he did at the Sermon on the Mount. The law belongs to Jesus, and he will teach it to you in all truth and splendor if we will come to him, learn from him, stay in his presence. See, the Pharisees and the scribes, you know it well, they wanted to add to the law. They wanted to make the yoke heavier. Jesus says, no, it's my yoke in my hands and under my patient instruction which he still carries on by the Spirit through the Scriptures and in the church, I'm going to give you my law and it's going to be life. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus says. And he doesn't mean, hey, put this on. I'm going to stand back here on the plow and you go ahead and work for a while. No, Jesus isn't saying, come to me and I'll really put you to work like Rehoboam. No, it's my yoke. It's Jesus' yoke because it is the yoke that he was pleased to bear for us and before us. The yoke that we take on our shoulders is none other than the crossbeam of the crucified Lord. We take up our cross because he took up his cross, the cross which is now our yoke. And yet that yoke is easy, that burden is light because he has already carried it for us. He's borne the weight of that yoke until it crushed and killed him, and by his resurrection he has made it light and buoyant. You may know although we're not so much agricultural people anymore, that yokes are usually made for at least two creatures. You're yoked together most of the time. So when Jesus says, it's my yoke, he's saying he's going to be right there with you, bearing the burden and sharing the work that he's given you to do. And that sounds kind of abstract at times. It's It's a beautiful image, but what does it mean day to day? If you want to know how that works in practice, let me just offer one suggestion. The next time that you feel weary, or burdened, or overwhelmed by the task in front of you, whether that is a child who needs to be nurtured, or a house that needs to be cleaned, or an assignment you need to complete, or a sermon you need to write, when you're confronted with that, just picture yourself for a moment yoked together with Jesus there beside you, and ask him to take the weight. The very heart of God is gentle. God is a kindred spirit with the lowly. He is always and everywhere approachable. He's always eager to meet you. Not occasionally, not from time to time. He's not gentle sometimes and then really stern others. The heart of God is gentle. His movement is always toward sinners and toward sufferers, that he might unburden and ease you and teach you anew. 
As one writer put it, for all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, which we shouldn't lose sight of, for all of Jesus' supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. There is a new sheriff in town. There is a king in our presence. And the very heart of that king is gentle and lowly. The Lord upholds all those who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Come to him and find rest for your souls. Amen.